Hi, I'm Adam Murray. Subtle Disruptors is about pondering two questions. What does it mean to live well in this moment, given the context within which we find ourselves? And how can we shape the world we live in so that it becomes closer to the one we want to inhabit? I do this by talking with people who you probably haven't heard of, but who I think are embodying a fascinating response to these two questions and doing it in a way that involves subtle changes all of us can make. I want you and I to get as much as possible out of these stories and to feel encouraged, connected, and resolute in our own quests of subtle disruption. This week, I'm talking with David Packman. Here's a little bit from David. And then, (laughs) this is kind of what I call, when I talk to people, the feather, the brick, and the train. If you're not living in in, in true alignment with, with your purpose, you know, with your values and principles and beliefs and stuff, I think life will continue to tell you this is the case. And, um... Most people don't listen. I certainly didn't listen. David and I had a heartfelt chat, but before I tell you about it, here's a quick word from our sponsor for this week. A brand new product to market, Roy Mint Company produced the highest quality fresh mints you can find, and through a connection to local artists, have created an entirely different mint experience. Available only in select coffee shops, partnered locations, and online. Learn more at roymintco.com and share their journey by following Roy Mint Co. on Instagram. The feather the brick and the steam train. I'll guess that for many of us, the subtle hints we get from life about the incongruence of the direction we are taking are easily dismissed. It often takes something much more blunt to get our attention, and often this involves considerable pain as well. David is a former corporate communications executive who had a series of confronting life events that challenged him to change the way he lived. He's a meditation teacher, founder of the health and wellbeing website, The Source, and editor with The Good Men Project, we share quite a bit in common through this conversation. Thanks for joining me, and I hope you enjoy listening to David Packman on the not-so-subtle disruption of personal crisis. Well, yeah, David, do you want to start by talking yeah. about where we are and why you've chosen this place? Well, this is the Victoria Avenue Wellbeing Centre. I work here two days a week as a registered meditation teacher and also a heart math coach. We'll talk a bit more about heart math, and yeah. I'm sure that'll be interesting as, as we weave that into the conversation. But yeah, I started here uh, several months ago. The idea was I felt that I needed a specific location for people to come and see me. Up until that point, I'd mostly been seeing people in their own homes or kind of organising a, a location kind of with them. But yeah, I thought it was kind of nice to kind of stamp my presence somewhere and, and in a certain sense take it to the next level. So it was a bit of a, an experiment to see what walked in the door or, or what use I'd make of a, an actual location. But this place has been around for a long time, I think I think around 16 or so years oh, really? in, its, in its current form. And obviously practitioners have, have come and gone, but there has been also a common thread of people all that time. Yeah. And the lady who, who runs the show here, we had a very instant connection when I came in. I just came in off the street and we had a chat and things moved very quickly and it just felt good in here. And her energy is certainly very present here, and it just seemed very easy. So yeah. here we are, a couple of months later, and sitting here talking to you. Yeah. So this, uh, so we're in South Melbourne. So this South Melbourne Park. Park. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, just down from the from the village. Yeah, too it's far a great from, spot. Yeah, it's a great spot. It's really leafy and quiet, and obviously, just got the beach down the road. So, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, from the point of view of a a serene location which is still reasonably close to the city. It's pretty good. To be around for 16 years too, things were quite different 16 years ago. It seems like a place like this, it seems very now, this kind of place. It seems like these sort of places are popping up quite a bit and they're a little bit more accepted. I imagine 16 years ago it would have been very kind of new agey and woo-woo and a lot of people probably would have avoided actively this kind of place. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Maybe not cross the street to avoid it, but probably certainly had a different mindset around what they felt when they walked past the signage out the front. There's no doubt about that. Um, but I think the modalities of what's being offered in here has kind of changed over, yeah. over time as well. But yeah, I mean, it's certainly helped with the, the kind of more, I guess there's a greater acceptance of um, alternative therapies and things like that. And I think that's great. You know, I'm not all about, I'm not one way or the other in terms of what people should do, but what I do believe is that people should have lots of things open to them and then they should be able to make informed choices. Yeah. So you mentioned that you're a meditation teacher. So yeah. in this space, is that 
one-on-one meditation yeah it is for the most part in here um teaching heart math but also so what you get more when you're working one-on-one with people meditation is they're coming in for a specific reason it's not part of kind of it's not like going to a yoga class or something which is from a meditation point of view probably done more in a group setting people just coming along because they baked it into kind of their weekly routine yeah and if that's the case they're probably more likely to go to a go to a group class and just do their thing. Yeah. Whereas what I'm doing here is generally working with people who have a specific issue of which meditation or heart map can help with some of the problems that may be in conjunction with other things they do. And oftentimes when you're in that role, the meditation of the time, of the time someone spends with me meditation may only be a small portion of that and the rest is just talking. Yeah. So you do play different roles. And I guess that leads us, starts to lead us towards a bigger question of why am I doing that, but I'm sure we'll get there. Yeah, well, let's lead into it. You know, why, what got you started on this path? Yeah, I mean, I've been doing it in this kind of form for about five or six years now. I mean, really, previous to that, I was a corporate guy. So I was a corporate communications executive. I had my own company, but prior to that, I worked for... AOL, part of Time Warner. Yeah. So I was a VP for Corpcom regionally and, and looking after Asia and Europe and kind of, you know, very much in that kind of corporate bandwagon, if you will. And then life kind of stopped me in my tracks a little bit and uh, I had good reason to kind of reassess what I was doing. Um, and if I fast forward quickly, that here I am. But obviously there's a lot in between that steps along the way which made that happen. Probably the first of those things was my sister taking her own life back in 2007. So she was in her uh, mid-30s at the time and obviously that had a massive impact on me. So, yeah, you know, that happened and and I definitely had cause to really reassess my purpose and the meaning of everything. She was my only sibling and we were very close and it really kind of ripped me apart. So, yeah, that was kind of the beginning of me starting to just question everything around me. You know, was, was this really what I wanted to do with my life? What was important to me? Was I really living in alignment with my values? Did I even know what my values were? So I continued working, but things were very different. I was starting to question things that I was doing, rather than just being on the corporate, you know, hamster in a cage on the wheel, days come and days go and you don't give it too much thought. In a certain sense, I started to become more present, you know. I'm starting to be more aware of the moment and kind of thinking, is this my true purpose and all this kind of stuff. Then a couple of years later, my mum, who already was quite ill with cancer, took a real turn for the worse. And um, I really scaled back my work and actually moved to Melbourne to be close to her. And so for the 12 months leading up to her passing at the end of 2010. It was very introspective and, and a lot of time spent spent with my mum and kind of, it was actually quite, whilst it was, you know, there's a lot of grief, it was also a very beautiful time because as a mother and son who'd kind of been through what we went through with my sister and my dad not being awfully present in our lives, we got to do stuff that mothers, all mothers and sons should do, but it was a very special time and we really talked about, you know, there was no subjects that were taboo, really. And by the time she passed away, yeah, there was really nothing left to be said, to wow. be done, and we, we knew how much we loved each other and it was, it was actually quite an incredible period. Um, but mum had always sort of dabbled in yoga and meditation and, and Buddhism and spiritualism to a certain degree lots of stuff around the house and lots of books and everything. But it was interesting because right near her end, we picked up the Tibetan Book of the Dead and we were daily we were reading, I was reading to her basically from, from the Tibetan Book of the Dead and it really reinvigorated my interest in my spiritual practice. So there was that going on as well. After she died, yeah, I kind of started re-looking at getting back into my Buddhist practice, which of course led to, to meditation. And then <laughs> this is kind of what I call um, when I talk to people the feather, the brick, and the train. I don't know if you've heard that. Have you heard that before? <laughs> I, I, I haven't. I think I know what you mean, but yeah. you explain it, please. Yeah. yeah. So um, I think if you're not living in, in, in true alignment with, with your purpose, you know, with yeah. your values and principles and beliefs and stuff, I think life 
will continue to tell you this is the case. Most people don't listen. I certainly didn't listen. Like I remember, I'm not, I'm, I couldn't even tell you why I was in that corporate world, to be honest. I think maybe it was because I was expected to. You know, Dad was a business guy. You know, I went to school, I went to university, and it was kind of uh, what you were meant to do. But I always fought against it. I mean, when I finished university, <laughs> I went and flew hot air balloons for five years. Did you really? Yeah. yeah. So I was resisting. Yeah. But eventually, you know, I started, you know, I said, I used to say, oh, I'll never wear a suit and tie, but then there I was, you know. So for me, I'd been getting tickles under the arm for a long time. You know, is this really what you want to do? Yeah. You know, somewhere along the line, whether it was my sister or my mum, I got the brick in the face, <laughs> which, which made me stop and listen for certain and started to make some big changes. Little did I know, I still had not been hit by the train. So six weeks after my mum died, I got diagnosed with blood cancer. So, you know, I'm sort of not even really anywhere near through the grieving process for my sister, let alone my mum, and there I am, a Cabrini sitting across the table from a very sort of lovely oncologist telling me that I had a progressive and incurable blood cancer. So um, that, was, that was the train. <laughs> yeah, so that was back in the beginning of 2011, yeah. I died at the end of 2010. And so I walked, I remember walking out of Cabrini and you sort of don't hear anything and people who've been diagnosed with cancer will tell you that. It's just someone's, you know, it's like blah, 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 cancer, blah, 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 incurable, blah, blah. You just don't, you just don't absorb very much. And so I, I walked out and I remember walking back to my car and as I approached the car, there was a parking inspector writing a ticket. Oh, God. So it was kind of just being hurled back into the world because, you know, your first thought when you walk out of the hospital is, you know, the birds are still singing and there's the, there's roadworks and cars going past and everything's just normal. Like, haven't they heard the news yet? You know? Like, why are people not rushing up to me and just hugging me in the street in tears? It's like, yeah. and, and you quickly realise that your life is kind of no more important than a, a leaf on a tree, you know? And that's a very important learning. So, yeah, so, like, so I get back to the car and the guy's in the midst of writing a ticket and I say, you know, do you have to? And he's like, you know, I've started so I have to finish the usual discussion that you get into with these guys. And I, I you know, probably got reacted with anger and frustration and probably said something I shouldn't have. And, you know, without even looking up at me, he just said, what's the matter, mate, having a bad day? And I was like, well, it kind of, you know. <laughs> but I actually didn't say anything um, and just let the process unfold. But I, I sat in the car for a while and I thought, you know, this is like, you know, this is what I'm going to have to get used to here. And, and it was this amazing revelation that I'm not the centre of the universe. So it was very, you know, you start to, to realise that the only way through this, now obviously this didn't all happen in the car, but over time yeah. you start to realise that the only way you're going to be okay with this is to actually just get rid of ego. And I had this saying at the time, saying that the world doesn't revolve around me, but it certainly does evolve around me. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So you're not the centre of everything and so you've got to get out of the way. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, from that moment on, that, you know, there were some big dips. And I'll, I'll be honest, I ended up in a mental institution. I ended up at the Melbourne Clinic for a couple of weeks because I think my brain just went, you know, my sister, my mum, this is just all too much too quickly and I just couldn't process it. Yeah. And so, yeah, whilst I was having these mini breakthroughs in the car almost immediately, the overwhelming sense was I can't cope with this. Yeah. And I just fell. So, yeah, ended up in a clinic, you know, went through that process and really when I came out of there it was just, you know, continually looking for that resilience and finding a way to kind of see this. And what was I going to do with this now? Because obviously, you know, can't go back and change anything. This is it now. So, yeah, just started to learn as much as I could about lots of things, about my cancer particularly. I started, you know, some people don't like doing that. For me, I've got a very curious brain, so I kind of wanted to explore as much as I could about what was going on, which led me to do an epigenetics course, which was extremely helpful, but also started to teach me about the environmental impact of disease. Like people talk about body and mind, but there's also an environmental factor. You know, you need to take care of a personal environment and that can be, you can actually define that very broadly. That could be everything, the people you hang out with, 
literally toxins in the house or, or your food. Yeah. Uh, like you can actually decide to define that however you want. Yeah. But it's extremely important. So my next step was actually to go and do a course in environmental science at the Australian College of Environment, which um, environmental sciences. So I did that. So I was starting to kind of build up this kind of base. And I also at the same time was very much studying mindfulness and, and doing the Buddhist practice, which again was more meditation. So what I was building up was a body of knowledge, but I wasn't too sure how the pieces all connected. Right? Yeah. But I soon started to realise what it was. And it was really that word environment, but I just took it to another level, which is what happens inside your head is another environment. So when I talk about environmental health, I talk about inner and outer environment now. So you've got to make sure your inner environment's working for you, as well as your outer environment. Yeah. And essentially those things, when they're all working together, will help you be the best person that you can. So yeah. I took about inner and outer environment and how your thoughts and your attitudes and, and, and those environments can contribute to your health and well-being. Yeah. Man, thanks for sharing so honestly about all that stuff. Mm. I really appreciate it. It's, um, I mean, um, I've got some parallels to my own experience as well. And your uh, parking inspector guy and your bird singing moment after just walking out of Cabrini. I had a moment like that after, you know, well, my marriage fell apart and I remember just jumping. I was a corporate guy at the time too and just jumping on the train that day and kind of looking around the carriage and just thinking, doesn't everyone know what's mm. just happening to me? Like what's going on with me right now? Like how can you all be so like blasé about it? And I guess that was my train, you know, in my life. Mm. And you, bet you were in it. Transport. <laughs> and I was in a train, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And then um, it's funny, like that's what you're talking about there, that inner and outer environment, that's been, that totally rocked my world. You know, I was in incredibly stressed and I couldn't eat and I just made a decision that if I'm going to survive this, I have to take care of myself the best way possible. And I did started doing my own research into meditation and started I read this book called The System's View of Life, which started to help me realise that, yeah, I am part of a system that I, I can never think of myself as an isolated unit, like I interact with the whole planet is part of me. That idea of interconnection started to really ring true and just um, led me to changing the way I ate and changing who I hang out, who I hung out with. Uh, like I stopped drinking alcohol, I barely drink coffee anymore and I just... For me, it was about I want to show up in as many moments as possible as, as the best version of myself as I can for as long as possible, really. And so, you know, changing the way I ate and starting to meditate were two massive factors in that for me. So, yeah, I really resonate with what you're saying there about, you know, in outer environment. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's... Um you know, what you're saying there is, is spot on. It reminded me a little bit of, I don't know, have you heard of Bruce Lipton? No. Yeah. Um, well, I urge you to read The Biology of Belief, which is his book. Yeah. But he talks about this idea of interconnectedness. I mean, he talks about a lot of things very closely aligned to this idea of inner and outer environment. But when he talks about the feeling of being, that we're all interconnected, he talks about it in the sense that if your body has a trillion cells in it, and more, they're, and they're all working in this incredibly in, in, intricate, interconnected way to to keep you going. He feels the species, the human species, behaves at on exactly the same level, and that every individual is a cell. Yeah. So if you think about it that way, it's actually a very clean analogy to make you feel connected. If we are all one, and you and me are all just cells within that body we have to do our bit and it gives you a sense of accountability a sense of responsibility but also a really keen sense of understanding as to how that idea of interconnectedness is very not only very true but very powerful yeah yeah and again the, 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 and that we will find a way just like nature i mean he, he, he tells stories about how oh, he's got this particular one about water filtration how because the water's becoming more polluted because of what man's doing, nature is actually finding more and better and more precise ways of naturally filtering the water. <laughs> yeah, and he, right. he's got these specific examples from places around the world where 
the natural filtration system, which already exists through rocks and things, is actually improving itself and doing things to to get rid of specific man-made without any. We're not doing anything. But in the same sense, your your body is that powerful too. So when it comes to healing and things like that, our own bodies have such an enormous part to play in what happens. I mean, you can go back to the Second World War to find out stuff like that. I mean, what, what happened in the Second World War when they were trying to, the kind of mobile hospitals and stuff, they were intervening straight away when an injured soldier would come off the field. And in the beginning, they had a 70% loss rate. But they started to think along these terms more and they were thinking, what would just happen if we let the person, like, you know, fix what was immediate, like the blood leads and stuff yeah. like that, but just let them sit for 24 hours and then go back and reassess what will the body tell us? And so will we intervene differently after the body's had a chance to get over the shock and the trauma yeah. and actually start to put itself back together again? And it went from 70% to 30%. Wow. Mm. Yeah. So, you know, and these, and these are just one of lots and lots and lots of, of stories along that lines where if you give the body a chance. Yeah. And unfortunately, in today's society, we just want to, in every sense, not just in medicine, we want to do something immediately. We're not very good at being patient. And unfortunately, you know, Mother Earth is patient and we need to learn how to be patient within ourselves. Yeah. So, you know rushing off and doing all this stuff because we want an immediate fix and immediate solution is often often not the right thing to do. Yeah. And I think for me, meditation really teaches me that. Yeah. Patience. Mm. I want to talk a bit about yeah your own practice and how the things that you've changed in your own life internally and externally in a minute as well. But I just wanted to touch on that, what you were talking there about timeframes mm. and species mm. as well. And mm. that's been a, a big um, realisation in my mind recently, just... Just how old the Earth is mm. and how recent Homo sapiens is yeah. and our role in this and that kind of the Earth will go on pretty well without us. Mm. Like if we became extinct, mm. you know, things would happen and things would change. Mm. Probably barely remember us. Yeah. Be like a bad relationship. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and, yeah, yeah, I really like that idea, you know, and... And patience as well. But anyway, mm. that idea of time frames has um, been um, a big thing for me. And just um, I get I get lost in it though. I mean, I get I lose the idea. I guess is what I'm saying. And yeah. kind of like deadlines and now and yeah. Christmas and pressures. Yeah. But well, what's um, interesting, and, and if I can just pitch in for a second, there's two things came to mind. Have you, in your role, worked much in China? Never. Yeah, no. it's it's interesting because I I lived in Hong Kong for a while. Yeah. You know, working in Asia for quite a long time, when American executives used to come over, particularly for the first time, they used to say, you know, I mean, it was a much bigger conversation, but in terms of kind of tell me what I need to know in that sort of American fashion, one of the things I used to joke about, but it's kind of true, I used to say, you know, you guys in America, you know, particularly in business, but even in life, you know, five minutes is a really long time. And I say one thing you need to learn when you're in China is a thousand years is a really short time. Yeah. And that's a very big difference in the way that we operate. Totally. Yeah. yeah. Quick, 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 now, 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 instant McDonald's or whatever. And, and China, you know, Chinese history, as you know, it's like, you know, yeah. a thousand years is not a long time. And so, even, even locally, you know, Aboriginal people have been here for tens of thousands of years and we've been here for 220 or whatever it is. And, yeah, it's, I think it's the same. Like, we can't really, for... When I say we, I say Europeans. Yeah. You know, we, um, yeah, five minutes is a long time because yeah. we, I guess Europeans don't have that sense of connection to this place for very long. But, yeah. you know, Indigenous Australians have been here for 40,000 years and, and know that, you know, things can take time and there's seasons and, you know, not everything has to happen super yeah. quickly. Yeah. yeah, you're right. And we're sort of now, 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 more, more, more. Yeah. And the more, more, more part comes into play quite a lot too because we have this strange idea in our heads that if a little bit of something is good, then a lot must be even better. Have you seen that frame come in? Yeah, totally. And, and that's very, very rarely the case. Yeah. Uh, if I have two glasses of wine, there may be some health benefits. If I have two bottles, it's not going to work out yeah. too well. And, but we tend to do that 
with a lot of things. And you'll find, you know, the way we market stuff. I remember a great example was alkaline water. There was this thing where it was just like the more alkaline it was, the more health benefits it had. And I was seeing ads for like super alkaline water, which is essentially caustic, which is, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's like the most abrasive cleaners we have, cleaning products, are not acid, they're alkaline. Yeah. So, you know, there's this balance in the middle called homeostasis, you know, and maybe if you've got an acidic diet, a slightly alkaline water would actually help a little bit, but there's probably doesn't actually, that's the science, but it won't do too much harm. But if you're drinking this super alkaline stuff thinking that's even better, yeah. it's not. You're just ripping the enamel off your teeth. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. Among whatever else is going on internally. But it was to me it was just it was interesting and, and there's plenty of examples of how, yeah, now, now, now and more, more, more. Yeah. Yeah. And we sort of market it that way. Now you know extra super turbocharged, but we're going outside that balance. Yeah. Totally. That I mean, in starting to meditate, which I started about two years ago, that that was one of the things for me that in taking things away, my life was actually more. Yeah. <laughs> Funnily enough. And in um yeah, you know what you're saying there about World War Two and, and mm. not intervening. Mm. Sometimes less is so much rich more enriching. Um mm. the idea of observing yeah. before acting. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And you know, there's a lot of talk about big data in my area in IT and that's how I kind of see this body, you know. It's like a big data machine. It's sensing so much all the time and every moment has so much to take in that, you know, in, in sort of just being in each moment, I can, my life is so much more enriched because I'm, I'm sensing so much more. Well, it's very yeah. interesting that you put it that way because that's an extremely accurate analogy because... When I take it, I was literally having this conversation yesterday with someone, but all we, all we are, we're just walking around absorbing experiences and sensing stuff. Yeah. And that's really all we're doing, you know, and, and hopefully learning from those things and putting them into practice next time we come across a similar situation. But it's all about that. It's, it is like a big data machine. You're right. Like if you walk into a supermarket and you see all these people, they're all having a unique experience, even though they're all in the same place doing essentially the same thing. Yeah. But they're all just absorbing stuff. And, you know, when you see a big group of people like that, it's really actually interesting in the supermarket because you can not only, you can steer your mind starting to make assumptions about people, you know, and <laughs> because of maybe what they throw in their cart or, you know, even the energy you get off in terms of their emotion. You know, a guy yeah. walking around pushing a single trolley and throwing in meals for one, yeah. and all of a sudden you feel like this giant picture in your mind of what his life is like. Yeah. Yeah. And um, <laughs> which uh, reminded me of something funny, but I don't know. I was just, when I was younger, I was actually in my hot air ballooning days. I was, before I even thought about any of this, I was in Sainsbury's, which is a supermarket chain in England, and there was a guy in front of me, and he looked like he had a, having a t- bit of a tough ride, but he literally had a can of beer, one a single can of beer, and a cucumber wrapped in a green clad wrap, and that was it. <laughs> in front of me. Uh, and I just started to think, and I actually started to get the giggles, because I was, I just, I just, like, wasn't sure what his night was going to look like. I was like, does he drink the beer before or afterwards? So <laughs> I don't know, it was just, but again, you know, looking back at that now, but, you know, I, I do find walking into situations like that, I just I just see this this complicated maze of humanity just all wandering around experiencing stuff but seeing things through a complete all of them seeing a completely different movie than yeah. the person next to them. Yeah. You know, we we just have this blank screen which is life and the mind just projects onto it and <laughs> and emphasizes or de emphasizes whatever it likes. Yeah. Yeah. Well um so tell me, yeah, tell me about how you live now. Yeah. Um, how do I live now? Yeah, look, um, I guess having rethought my values and my purpose and stuff like that, you know, I guess some of those things which were the driving influence in my life, like making lots of money and what I'm realising now is what impression I was making on other people. I was pretty pleased with my title of vice president, yeah. things like that. But, you know, was I appeasing my dad? Did I want to make him proud? Or, you know, what was I actually doing? But it was all about this kind of imposter syndrome, which you may or may not have heard about. Kind of. Yeah, I felt so, it. Yeah, yeah I know so this idea that 
that I had to, whatever I did was all about making sure that everybody else thought I was cool or everybody else thought I was, you know, senior or wise or whatever, but not me. So I realised I was very empty inside and also realised that, yeah, I was, you know, I was the, my dopamine reward was, was money and all these kind of very outer attachments. And so now, yeah, you know, those things are less important to me. Yeah. And my values are very different and, you know, I don't have a kind of regular revenue that I stream that I can call upon, but, you know, I just have enough that we need and, and that's really kind of all that matters. Yeah. And it's not about, I don't, you know, it's, it's, I don't really, what other people think of me is entirely up to them and I can't control that anyway. Yeah. But I'm true to my values. Yeah. Um, and if something, something is incongruent to that, then I don't behave in that way. I change my behaviour. Yeah. So physically what it looks like is, yeah, you know, meditating a lot and that's, you know, baked into what I do every day. I've changed the way I eat, changed the way I exercise. And, um, but most importantly, I'm continuing to try and change the way I relate to people. Yeah. And obviously um, all of these things are a lifelong work in practice. But, you know, if I do respond in a bad way, anger and frustration or something, I catch myself rather than just doing it and then blaming everybody else and doing that thing which most people tend to do. Yeah. And not judging. Just I'm just trying. I was to say, I'm no finished product and I never will be, but I'm more aware yeah. and that's the difference. Yeah. Like I can catch myself, oh, I shouldn't have responded in that way, rather than just not even seeing it or justifying my behaviour. Yeah. By saying, oh, it's your fault that I behaved that way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So easy to do. Mm. So convenient. Mm. Well. Absolutely. And that's essentially where ego and self comes from. It's this, this I like, I don't like. And that, you know, anything bad that happens to me is essentially somebody else's fault. Yeah. You know, but what, what's, what I find interesting is something good happens to you. You're quite happy to go, well, I did that. But if something <laughs> yeah. bad happens to you, you, you start looking for someone, something to blame or some set of circumstances that are outside of your control that you can blame. Totally. Yeah. yeah. But if, if it was a good result, hey, that was me. Yeah. Like, how does that work? <laughs> uh, there's a book called, um, there's a guy called, uh, I always forget his middle name, but it's um, Nissan Taleb. Right. Same. He's wrote Andy Fragile and the Black Swan. Okay. But he also wrote Fooled by Randomness. What's it called? Fooled by Randomness. Oh, yeah. And it's just this idea that it's really the idea of how much luck plays in our life. Oh, yeah. You know, and how much and how willing we are to ascribe our own skill to things that are just luck. Yeah, and, and you can actually break down luck, you know, into really interesting subcategories as well as to what luck actually actually means. But yeah, there is a certain amount of, of randomness. Of course there is. Yeah. But at the same time, things happen in terms of cause and effect that we're completely unaware of. Yeah. Um, and, you know, from a Buddhist perspective, there's a very you know, different view about that. Um, which luck doesn't really play a part in at all. Well, tell us about that. Yeah. Oh, I, I mean, you know, everybody's, it's essentially cause and effect, you know, and it starts in the mind. Yeah. You know, if you don't mind me saying, it's like when you broke up with your wife or any relationship that's ending, it's yeah. not, that just hasn't happened no. then. Yeah. There's cause and eventually, you know, when you're sitting there and you're meditating, you're essentially planting the seeds for the future. So you're creating your own luck in a sense. So if something bad is happening in your life now, you know, it's seeds that were planted long ago. You know, if you in a relationship, for example, you are obviously, you know, you get to decide if you want to plant apple seeds or cactuses. <laughs> and when that forest of cactuses or apple seeds flourishes, it's due to your yeah. own behaviour, right? Yeah. So when you meditate, you're kind of actively in the moment planting apple seeds. But you're also saying, putting your hand up and taking responsibility for the position that you're in now. And some of the meditation stuff that when I'm doing guided meditations, a lot of it in the beginning just to set the mind is around, you know, I'm taking ownership for where I am now and I'm spending this time meditating now to take ownership of the future by what I do in the present moment. Yeah. Mm. Mm. If that makes sense. Yeah, it does. It makes a lot of sense. Mm. I guess it ties in with the, what we're talking about in terms of 
immediacy and time and uh, planning, you know, not always doing things for the next five minutes yeah. as well, you know, like that's what you're talking about. It's planting seeds for years to come. Like for sure, a lot of meditation, you, you, I guess there are, I've found some immediate benefits, mm. but, and I haven't been meditating for that long, but I imagine as I continue to do it, there'll be deeper, richer benefits as the years go on. Oh, there well. will be. Um, but again, for me, you know, to reaping the rewards of the benefits of meditation is, 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 is more a side effect. Sure. You know, it's actually yeah. what I'm doing in that present moment, which I find is why I'm doing it. Yeah. So, yes, absolutely. It has all kinds of rich benefits. It's a bit like, maybe it's a clunky segue, but talking about happiness, for example. It's like people, if I meditate, I'll be happy, for example. Particularly in the Western world, we tend to view happiness as an end result of what we do, of our actions, and also that when we get there, it's a permanent state. <laughs> yeah. You know? and, and, you know, obviously nothing's a permanent state. And essentially that's probably the Right there, that very statement is the best reason to understand the nature of your own mind because nothing is permanent. So if you want to hang your hat on something that's going to make you happy or content in this life, there's nothing else because literally everything else, including the very ground we stand on, is impermanent. Yeah. You know, whether that's your family, your wife, yourself, as in your body, your, everything you own, yeah. that will, all of it will go. So, you know, and this is why, you know, the Buddhists often talk about, you know, aversion to attachments. But that's like, you know, material goods that you often hear in that sort of frame. But of course, because a car is not going to make you happy. There's no reason why you shouldn't have it. And this is why people, when I talk to people, it's not, that doesn't mean you shouldn't go out and buy a Porsche. <laughs> but just understand, be consciously aware of what that is. So if it was stolen the next day, you shouldn't feel anything. Yeah. You know, like yeah. what are you attaching to that? Is that, you know, if you're buying a car to make you happy, it's the wrong idea. If you're buying a car because you just love it and you think that, you know, the technology is amazing and all this stuff and makes you happy to look at it, but you're not attached to it beyond that, it's not giving you any sense of anything, it's still okay. Yeah. As long as you're not making a bad financial decision, but it's still okay. So it's, it comes back to awareness. So for me, happiness, it's a side effect. Yeah. You know? And it also comes and goes. It's fleeting. Yeah. So you have to understand it. It's not a permanent state, you know. And I, I mean, it all sounds so obvious, but I just don't think that many people are living that. No. And mm. yeah, it's funny what you're saying there. It does sound obvious. And I mm. even like I find that there's times where things like that are much more. I embody them. Are much much more and I understand them much more than I do at other times. Yeah. And I can reflect on times when that has been a really deep truth and at the moment it's just sort of, it's not as deep as it has been. I don't mm -hmm. live it as much. Mm -hmm. And yeah. um, Why do you think that is? I think because, it's simply because I've, I haven't, I haven't been stopping as much as I have in the past. Yeah. I've, I've a lot of extra things into my life right. over the past, say, four months, which has been a necessary season. There's been consequences for that, though. Yeah. Part of it is I was explaining how I've had a, I needed to take a break from publishing the podcast. Yeah. I've been doing weekly for, you know, 40 odd weeks. Mm. And it was becoming a real effort to get each one out. I wasn't enjoying it anymore. And it was because of, all these other things that I was trying to do in my life and it got me to the point of realising I need to reduce some things to enable me to have more of a sense of enjoying each thing that I'm doing and being in each moment that I'm in and I guess accepting the impermanence of things as well. Yeah. yeah. That's my reflection on why anyway. Well, yeah. but listening to you say that, you know, to me, like the idea of kind of pulling back on the, on, the, on the podcast stuff is actually that whole process you just described is actually a very conscious process yeah. because a lot of guys, you know, reach retirement age and go, I felt like that my entire working life, <laughs> yeah. you know. Yeah. I wasn't enjoying it anymore, but they don't see it at all, if ever. Yeah. So it's very conscious of you after less than a year to actually start to see some inconsistencies. Yeah. Um, in, hey, you know, I need to 
pull back and just maybe look at this from a different perspective and see you know, what needs to change to make it fun again. Yeah. And you've done that in 40-odd weeks. You know, I, I would suggest that there's a hell of a lot of people out there who don't do that in 25 years. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. you know, is that a result of meditation or a result of just you? I don't know. But, you know, we all run these programs, you know, which kind of drive our personality and drive our behaviour. It's a bit like a computer operating system, right? Yeah. And they're all full of viruses and bits and pieces. And, and you know, you at the moment, that's quite a conscious thing. So I'd be sort of patting myself on the shoulder a bit and saying, <laughs> you spotted it, well done, because... Yeah. You know, we're talking about podcasts here, but people versus people's whole lives, but, you know, that happens quite a lot. Yeah. And you see, for example, a spike in, you know, we talk about relationships. There are big pockets of relationship in the timeline of relationship where you see divorces and breakups. And a big one, if you may be well aware, is when the kids leave home. Yeah. Because these two people who've been incredibly busy just doing and not being suddenly wake up in the morning and go, who the hell are you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the relationship breaks down. Yeah. And it's kind of similar because you're just not paying attention. Yep. Which makes me think about, you know, you were talking about the feather, the brick and the train yeah. earlier as well. And I've got to the point where it's been incredibly hard two years, but I'm so grateful that the train came. Mm. So grateful. Like I needed that. Mm. And I look around at some of the people I know and I can see that they're getting the feather. Yeah. And I wonder, but I just, like, I don't know, I wonder if, is the brick or the train ever going to come? Like, does it always come? Does it come for everyone? And I, I, I think maybe some people don't, they just get the feather. Yeah, you know I mean? well, maybe in this lifetime. Yeah. Uh, it, look, it's a really interesting question, isn't it? I'm not sure the answer. Uh, yeah. It's a very interesting question. I think everybody if they really stop and I think can knows when they're acting out of alignment. But does an actual event come along or not? Or do these events continually come along and they just say, well, that's my lot. You know, I'm just somebody who's constant about uh, luck. Or they, like they've reframed it in a way that they don't actually see it as a, as a something that's trying to teach them something. Yeah. They just see it as a ship life or some other yeah. kind of thing where they're just stuck in this, kind of, yeah, bad things always happen to me as opposed to why are these things happening? Because yeah. what's the common denominator? You. <laughs> yeah. You know? So if things are going to change, it's got to be up to you. Yeah. But so I, I'd suggest that the lessons are coming thick and fast. Some of them are at a kind of micro level as opposed to a big macro level. But do people, you know, get hit by the train? I think it's in degrees, yes. Yeah. And it's how you want to... So, yeah, I guess what we're saying is it's how you want to translate that story, isn't it? Because mm. for some people it might be something quite small. I know yeah. someone, for example, who's now a meditation teacher who was in corporate who had a really bad reaction to eating food, like which it was only kind of like an overnight thing, or a couple, but it caused her to completely reassess. Yeah. You know, for some people they might just see that as just something that happened. Yeah. So it really depends, doesn't it? So for her, that was a train. Yeah. For other people, it may not even be a feather. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think? Why did you react the way you did? To I, think, I think your true purpose is always there. I just think there are kind of nails in front of it. And you mean why do they make the changes? Or Yeah, or so, I mean, you know, when you were clinical? told... That, <laughs> no, when you were told... Well, yeah, obviously it wasn't just a, a black and white, I'm going to choose this. You yeah, know, yeah. It was a, quite a process for yeah. you. But when you were told you had cancer and mm. to where you are today, yeah. you know, we talked about people that might have reacted to say, oh, life's just shit and I just have a really bad lot and yeah. this is just my lot yeah. and I hate life. Yeah. And maybe you had thoughts like that at yeah. the time. Yeah. But, you know, you've... I guess you've struggled through them and you've mm. got to this point mm. where you are now and you're yeah. kind of using it as a way to, I guess, improve yourself and yeah. challenge yourself. Like why, why did you choose that way and not the other way? What do you think? Well, firstly, yeah. the idea of improving, my, you know, what's underlying all this is that I want to use my experiences to benefit people. Like okay. that's my driving thing now, yeah. you know. 
um, you know, whether it's my little son or, or just anybody, really. You know, so when I tell my story, it's not about, wow, you know, David's been through a whole lot of stuff and isn't he this, isn't he that. It's not, I'm trying to make a point that, you know, this is a process that everybody may need to go through and what can you learn from it? So for me, you know, for me, staying alive as long as I can with my cancer is not for me and can I improve myself? It's because I feel I've still got plenty to offer others. So that's kind of what drives me forward and that's maybe, I don't know, that's just what it is, you know. So yeah. me being well enough is so that I can help people, Yeah. not so that I can be well enough for me. But in a sense, that is for me because it's what drives me. It's my purpose, right? So <laughs> yeah. um, does that answer the question? I'm not sure. Yeah. Maybe I've gone off on a tangent. Yeah, it yeah. answers a different question. That's yeah. good. I guess what I'm, I guess maybe what I'm thinking about, was it, you know, you talked about your mum and your relationship with her and some of the, I guess, the journey that it sounds like she was on mm. in her life as well. Do you think mm. those seeds helped you? I see where you're getting. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, in a nutshell, without getting too deep into it, you know, my mum and my dad could not have been two more different people. Yeah. You know, it's hardly surprising that they didn't last the distance. You know, dad was, was very driven, business-minded, et cetera, et cetera, and, and there's nothing wrong with it, whatever path you choose. And mum was much more kind of spiritually aligned and aware and a bit of a hippie. Yeah. So for her, you know, those seeds were sown in me, using your language. Yeah. But dad's also, you know. So I guess for me, there was kind of a very much a kind of dichotomy going on. Yeah, so for me, totally. it probably wasn't too hard to flip from one thing to the other because they were kind of, both programs were kind of running. Yeah. But, you know, what I will say at this point is I was depressed and anxious as a kid and mum had depression and anxiety and dad and stuff going on. So there was some pretty interesting kind of mind maps or mind models going on in my family. And I knew, I mean, I first had suicide ideation when I was about 14, I think. Yeah. So, you know, and I was really obsessive compulsive and I had this like routines that had to happen or else I'd get frustrated and so yeah I had a lot of stuff going on in my own head as a kid yeah. which I needed to work through and I think what happened was just throwing myself into well you, you can sort of see like going off and flying hot air balloons and then coming back and and just throwing myself into the corporate world so hard that I rose quite quickly and like there was just this I was it was almost like I was avoiding what was going on in my mind yeah and, and you know and so my way through depression was yeah, work harder, but also play harder, you know, like drink and, and do lots of things like that, which were easy fixes. Yeah. Um, but I didn't know at the time that I was fixing anything. Yeah. So to have that crash and actually end up in the clinic is probably the best thing that could have happened for me. So, again, you know, back to that analogy, I probably needed it, but because I don't think I would have changed too much. And I was, I, I, you know, I was in quite destructive relationships and things like that. You know, it's like there was lots of signs that everything wasn't right with me. And that's why we talked about the passion as, you know, in a situation like that, where I never really looked at what was going on inside here, I don't know how I would have responded if you put me in a 10-day passion back then. May have, may have, you know, I don't know. Yeah. I wouldn't like to think. Because essentially when you meditate, it's a mirror inside your own mind. And whilst, you know, we can see what's going on on the outside of our body, so we go to a gym, we get bigger muscles and we look and it's better, but the same thing's going on when you meditate. But if you're... a things aren't all right in there and then you suddenly look in the mirror, you might get a bit of a shock. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Mm. Totally. Mm. That was my experience and yeah. it was a shock, but um, it's been a good shock. It's been valuable. Mm. We've been going for a bit, quite a while. Okay. But I was just going to, yeah. There's a, few, there's a few things I wanted to talk about yeah. still. One's just about the... You know, you alluded to sort of the type of work that you're doing now and mm. um, you want to talk a bit more about that, like the type of meditation you teach or, yeah. you know, how you help people and how you want to help people. Yeah, so, sure. Well, yeah. you know, briefly, this is the way I see meditation and it sort of broadly falls into three categories. So you've got the awareness side of it, which is essentially the mindfulness part. So all these kind of, you know, that's kind of like a... A mode jour at the moment. Everyone's talking about mindfulness, and um, which is great, but it, it but it talks about sort of refinding yourself in the present moment and becoming more aware, and yeah. you know things like thin slicing joy, which is essentially 
stopping the smell of the roses, <laughs> yeah. which is great, all excellent, absolutely. But to me, that's stage one of meditation, becoming aware yeah. and becoming present and finding yourself in the moment. The next stage for me is when you start talking about energies and emotions and you can, you can define that how you will, anything. And this is kind of where my heart math practice comes in. So first step in heart math is doing the mindfulness stuff, but the next step is bringing in emotions. Because we know, you know, and science will tell you that when you feel gratitude, appreciation, love, courage, joy, your body physiology changes. Yeah. And however way you cut meditation, whether from the spiritual side or from the more kind of the more kind of contemporary views, that next step of introducing an energy makes a difference. So heart math's all about getting yourself centered and present and then drawing on renewing emotions. Because yeah, we all know how depleting emotions like, you know, anger, fear, jealousy and frustration and so forth take away. Yeah. Make you, and from a, at a physiological level, your body starts introducing cortisol and all these bad things start happening and you become less resilient and less coherent. Well, obviously, the opposite is true. So heart math teaches you meditation but then overlaying it with energies and emotions. But, you know, you can take that all the way through to chakras and wherever you want. If you want to go down that path, that's all about the introduction of something else yeah. around energy and emotion, lights, you know, all the different sorts of meditations that you hear. Yeah. So that's stage two. And stage three in meditation is what I call identification or invocation. And the way to think about that is if we're all meditating to get enlightened just to whatever, you, however you want to define that, to whatever degree, you know, at one end, becoming the Buddha or at the other end simply becoming lighter in the way you live, it would be very nice to actually envisage somebody who's already got those qualities and essentially just be in their presence and I want to be like you and can I absorb as much of that from you while I meditate? And in essence, that's what invocation and identification is all about. So in a Buddhist practice, it's imagining the Buddha or a Lama and actually meditating on being in their presence, not as a person, but as in their qualities and just trying to just be there and, and, and be with those qualities and, and absorb them as much as you can. And when the meditation concludes, it's about going back about your daily life but trying to hold that view. So it's about being in the presence of the qualities, not the person, and then holding the view as you go about your daily life. So those are the three kind of broad categories of meditation. Um, and the interesting part about the third one is it, the first two are a bit like climbing up a mountain. So the more you do it, the more you get closer to it. Whereas the third one is almost like a helicopter ride up to the top of the mountain and a direct view of it and then helicopter down and trying to hang on to that view as long as you can, <laughs> yeah. as opposed to just the, the walk. Yeah. So in some sense, it's kind of a faster method. Yeah. So in a sense, I'm doing my best to kind of practice all three. So yeah, I work with inside corporates and I do the mindfulness stuff. Yeah. And I work a lot with clients around the heart math stuff. And then that third thing, which is called guru yoga meditation, um, is something that I practice um, at the Buddhist center down the road here. Yeah. But again, it informs the way I work with people. Yeah. I haven't heard really about the third type before. Yeah. Um, yeah. Does it look different or, I mean, does it, is it, is it different kinds of practices or is it where um, it's done or? It's, it's, it's all those things in a way. Um, I mean, there are different schools of, of Buddhism. Um, so looking at it from pure, it's not purely the spirit, well, looking at it from the spiritual sense, there are three schools of, of, of Buddhism. You've got Hinayana, Mahayana, Vajrayana. The Vajrayana Buddhism is about, it's often called the way of identification. So it's about those kinds of practices. Yeah. So yeah, you know, they're all different methods and, and different schools and they've all been around for thousands of years. They've just kind of gone slightly different ways. So, you know, Hinayana will often be called the lesser vehicle, which doesn't mean it's lesser. It's just the way it's referred to. Yeah. Etc. Up to the, the way of identification of the higher, the higher road, the higher vehicle. Yeah. Mm, so, 
Yeah, it's an interesting conversation, but um, I see it more and more in terms of the way meditation's taught and practiced that, for me at least, it's not written in stone. This is my way of kind of seeing it. Is it broadly falls into this idea of awareness, energy, and invocation, if you like. Yeah. 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 You know, for people that are, I'm talking about myself here, I mm. suppose. Like I've been meditating for about two years and I've been thinking, oh, I think I'd like to take this further. Maybe I need a teacher. Maybe I need to go to a meditation center. Maybe I need an app. Mm. You know, like, <laughs> yeah, like what, what would you advise somebody like me? What would, what would your guidance be? Oh, look, I think it's a very individual thing. I mean, any, uh, me personally, I believe that introducing any kind of meditation into your life can only be a good thing, even if it's five minutes a day. Yeah. I guess it's going to be a lot on what works for you and what feels right for you. Yeah. Um, like there's certainly no point. You know, the last thing you want to develop is an aversion to meditation. That's absolutely the last thing you want. <laughs> so, you know, if it starts becoming a chore, you know, you, you're really taking away a lot of the benefits right there and then. Yeah. So you need to just kind of dabble until you find something that works for you and fits into your life. To, but you certainly don't want to be sort of getting up in the morning and going, geez, I'm going to do an hour of guru yoga meditation and I'm not looking forward to it. It's going to be a drag and it's going to make me late for work and blah, blah. It's got to, you know, then you start developing aversions, which is, of course, completely counterintuitive to what you're trying to do. Yeah. So, you know, whether it's a five-minute app or whatever, um, I guess it just, it's just suck it and see, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I suggest trying lots of different things. You know, for some people, the apps are great. Certainly with heart math techniques, there's, there's five-minute techniques which you can do in your car. So, you know, I often work with people and it's just like when you get to work, before you go in, just sit down for, with yourself for five minutes and, and do a heart math practice. Yeah. And you might find that things change. Yeah. And over time, you know, you start developing those neural pathways where you, you don't have to meditate to meditate, if you know what I mean. Like it starts getting baked into, mm. like you just notice yourself Noticing yourself. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Without trying. Yeah. So, and that's the beauty of it. I've got this vivid memory of when I did my Vipassana meditation and I think it was like I was into like day six or day seven, mm. something like that, and um, Goenka keeps saying, you know, continuity of practice is the key. You mm. know, when you walk back to your rooms after this session, you know, Think about how your legs feeling, or you know, be meditating as you're walking. Yeah, and I remember sitting there thinking, man, I'm sitting here meditating for like twelve hours a day. <laughs> like seriously, I don't want to do any more meditation. Yeah, you know, like just shut up. Mm. And then I remember walking and just noticing how I noticed my leg, and I noticed how it felt when it moved, and how my foot felt when it hit the ground, and it was, it was amazing to sense that mm. really for the first time, mm. like to really understand in a different way how my leg was moving and how it felt as it moved. Mm. And it was exciting. I was like, mm. oh, my gosh, yeah, mm. continuity of practice. Like mm. it's like my mind had shifted and mm. I could actually just be doing anything mm. and have a different sense of what mm. was actually happening in my body. Mm. And then another time I, I noticed whenever I used to cut vegetables with a knife, I'd really hold my breath. Yeah, right. And I just became aware of how I'd do that and then I'm like, oh, I don't actually need to do that. Yeah. But, you know, it, I guess it started to dawn on me that um, what I was practising, you know, in the morning was starting to change how I was in the world the rest of my day too. And that's exactly yeah. what I'm talking about, that, you know, the idea of, oh, God, more meditating, more meditating all the time, it actually... You know, once those neural pathways start developing, it, it you know you don't think about it. It becomes like breathing. Yeah. Um, it's just completely baked into the way you are. And and Dharma, which is you know, which is essentially the Buddhist practice, means the way things are. Yeah. And it just is the way things are. It's as simple and as complex as that. Yeah. But you know, you talk about oh, I noticed my leg moving and stuff like that. Well, if you walk through the conversation we just had as to where it'd be nice for a brain to get to. It'd be like, you've noticed it, and then your the emotion comes in, so you're grateful for the fact that 
you can do that. Yeah. There's plenty of people that can't, but you don't need to go that far. But it's just being grateful for the very fact that you have movement and you can walk. Yeah. And then the next step is motivation. It's like, given I can do that, what can I do to help people? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's, that's essentially the flow. Yeah. Mm. That's a good example for it. Yeah. Mm. I've got two questions as we start to wrap up. Sure. The first one's about, so this podcast is called Subtle Disruptors. Mm. And it's about, I guess, uh, the different ways people are having a, an under-the-radar impact through their life, through their work, through who they are. But the, the question's about something that you, I guess, daydream about subtly disrupting one day. Like, is there something that, you know, just sits in the back of your mind and you think, yeah, I'd like to be part of that one day or, or, or not even you'd like to be part of it, but I'd like to see that disrupted one day. I'd like someone to do something <laughs> about that. Yeah, look, yeah. It's, a, it's a big question. I guess the immediate thing that comes to mind is I'd love for there to be kind of a tipping point when the majority of people are kind of thinking in the way that we just have in the last however long we've been chatting. Yeah. Because there's a lot of rigid and stiff ideas and concepts at the moment out there and I'd like to see that being subtly disrupted yeah. so that this kind of conversation is considered normal as opposed to something which is a bit of a rarity. And I'm finding it more, that might be the circles that I'm in, but um, I'm finding this conversation is kind of, I can have it more easily with more people, but it'd be nice to think that it was just a very kind of average conversation. You know what I'm saying? A, a, a conversation yeah. which is much more accepted rather yeah. than being a bit, wow, that's different because it's not different. I think it's just, it should be quite much more accepted than it is yeah. for some reason. And, you know, it's great when I meet someone like yourself who's kind of living it already it's and, and the embodiment of it and yeah so that, that would be that would be terrific probably the second part of the answer would be around um and this is i'm suddenly taking a bit of a jump here but around death literacy and that's for the same reason it's having been through you know loss of close ones in the family and having kind of a few face-to-faces with the grim reaper myself around my cancer it i just feel that that's also an extremely difficult conversation and if something was to be disrupted, I would love to see how we frame death because it's essentially this part of life. <laughs> and we have this terrific ability in modern times to just sweep it under the carpet and not talk about it and be afraid of it and therefore if, we, if I don't talk about it, it's not there. Yeah. Yet we're confronted with it every single day and we have no idea how to handle it. No. And it really ties into the whole conversation we've been having. But... You know, sometimes I'll find that a lot of the work I'm doing is around getting people to reframe death. Like if I've got a guy sitting in front of me who's just been diagnosed with cancer, that very quickly becomes a conversation that you have to have. Yeah. And you often find that people, you know, have been uncomfortable with that for a long time because of how we're brought up. And if that was different, you would find that when these types of life and death situations arise, we may have much more grace and ease around them. Yeah. You mentioned a book, the Tibetan... Oh, the Tibetan Book of the Dead? Yeah, what's... Is yeah, that, it's, is it's, that around death literacy? I've heard conscious, that. conscious dying. Okay. But there's... Yeah, so... Um, and there are certain meditations you can do around that too, just so when the time comes, you can look at the nature of your mind and, and really be aware yeah. of what's going on and what needs to be done. Yeah. Mm. The last question is about yourself sure. um, and reflecting on a small change, a subtle disruption that you've made in your own life that's had an uh, important or meaningful impact on, on um, the way you go about things or who mm. you are or how it's made a significant change. But, yeah, something in your own life. Well, I think, you know, you're, I think I'm fine-tuning every day and I think I said to you, earlier and I think we all, you know, we're all a work in progress and we'll still be a work in progress when we take our last breath. Yeah. So for me, I guess I'm becoming more aware and more conscious of, of that fine-tuning. So, and I think meditation's a big part of that for me. So I don't think, there's any, I, don't think I could answer that with any one particular thing, but just to say that it's, it's an ongoing process. Yeah. And it happens all the time, like all, literally moment by moment. So, you know, I walk away from this conversation and 
you know, hopefully I'll, I will have learnt some stuff and I'll be able to make some fine tuning around that. Like we're just constantly doing it. Yeah. Which is why the mind's such a, a fascinating thing because the combination of permutations and combinations of the various neural pathways in our brain are enormous. Actually, I think it's, I might, I might be spot on with this, but it's something like the most complicated thing in, in the known universe. It's actually our own mind, just because of the permutations and combinations and, uh, of neural pathways, and that every second, every experience changes the combination and makes us different. So we're literally fine-tuning down to the <laughs> yeah. nanosecond. Yeah. It's mm. great. David, thanks so much for no <laughs> taking me in here and um, <laughs> having this awesome conversation. It's been so good to chat with you. Cheers. It's a pleasure to meet you and a pleasure to chat. Hey, thanks so much for listening. I have a question for you. If you were confronted by a perspective-shifting crisis today, what do you think you'd change about the way you live? I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. You can post something on the Facebook page, through Twitter or Instagram, or even send me an email, adam at subtledisruptors.com. And of course, let me know if there are subtle disruptors you think I should know about. Coming up next week, I'll be talking with Emma Sharley about taking that nerve-wracking step from the corporate world to working for yourself. I'm Adam Murray, and I hope you feel a little more encouraged, connected, and resolute in your own quest to subtle disruption. Bye for now.